0: Um, and uh, we're just really happy to be talking about this event um, and to, to discuss the work is um, uh, his brother uh, uh, so, sorry his sister <laughs> sister Suzanne Kippenberger um, uh, a fine uh, writer and journalist herself so please welcome Suzanne Well, thank you very much for the introduction and uh, for the invitation. It's um, The book is going to come out in English at the end of the year. This is the German version. And so this is the premiere, uh, which I'm very excited about, but also nervous, so bear with me. And thank you, of course, for uh, to Villa Aurora that I could stay here for three months. It's a wonderful place, and you should all go to the concert next week, really. And also, thank you, Emily and Charlotte, for helping me with the technical things, and I'm sure we'll Workout uh, uh, later on. My brother and I, um, we are very, very different in. Um in almost any respects, and I think this is uh, why we got along quite well. Uh, Martin was always the bad boy and I was always the good girl and uh, he moved every few months and sometimes even every few days from Hamburg to Florence to Berlin to the Italian countryside to the Black Forest to Cologne to Vienna to the Austrian countryside back to Cologne to the south of Spain back to Cologne and to Los Angeles and on and on and I've been living even in the same apartment in Berlin for 20 years. (laughs) So in those uh, 44 years of his life, my brother put together almost 150 books. And it took me 50 years to write one book. So this is how different we are. But there's one thing we have in common. That's our fear of machines. And uh, we are just terrible with everything technical. And my brother didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have a computer. So he would understand all the problems today. Um, The the book came out four four years ago uh, for the 10th anniversary of his death. My brother died in 1997 at the age of 44 of liver cancer, hepatitis, and liver cirrhosis. You could say he died of his life, which is very, very intense life. Some people said that after a few hours with my brother, they needed to rest uh, for several days because he was so intense. He died very quickly, within six weeks, so people were um, quite shocked because they didn't even know, most people didn't even know that he was ill. And they were shocked even more when they uh, lived in Cologne and passed a bookstore, a bookstore named uh, uh, Walter König, and I hope later on you will see the picture, Uh, Walter König he uh, took out all the pictures, uh, all the books in the window and put in all of Martin's books. So the very, the the very night that he died and a lot of people in Cologne uh, who knew him, they passed the window, this is how they learned that he was dead, but a lot of people also learned for the first time how much he did because, you know, it was a huge window, it was stuffed with his books. A lot of people thought, because my brother spent a lot of time in bars, uh, that all he did was drinking, but it wasn't. Um, The bookstore, since we are in a bookstore, I thought um, I would read a passage from the part about the Walter König bookstore, which was quite important for him. Martin called it his bar, even though no drinks were served there. It was in the heart of the city, just steps away from galleries, studios, paint stores, and cafés. The regulars gathered at the table in the middle of the narrow bookstore, packed with new books, catalogues from all over the world, and catalogues of the house press. Every morning, the cologne artist crept around the table in a single file a journalist wrote at the time. The Koenig roundabout is an unofficial requirement for anyone who wants to stay up to date in Cologne. The important thing is who walks in front of you and who walks behind you. Martin said, 10 minutes in the circle and I knew whatever I needed to know in Cologne. He came by every day on the way to to or from the galleries from the cafe, the paint store. He sent his students and assistants to browse and buy books there too. Circling around the table saved him lots of trips to museums. Nowhere else could you get more current information about what was happening in art. The bookstore itself was like a museum, showing not only pictures but also the artist's books. And um, Walter König, he um, also made books uh, with Martin, a lot of them. Martin often came uh, to the bookstore and just um, set up his um, desk, or he sat at the desk and made it his home office. And then they started to think up some ideas, and sometimes within an afternoon, they had an idea for a new book, and they made it, and there it was. Martin didn't sleep much. He was uh, up for what feels like 20 hours, and most of these 20 hours were spent in public spaces, bars, restaurants, galleries, or the bookstore. He needed company because this was one of the things he was afraid of, and I think it was the only thing he was afraid of, to be alone. He was a master of organizing his life so that he would never have to be alone. He developed little strategies, would call up his Guise La Capitaine, at five in the morning to ask what she was doing. 8 a.m. would find him in front of Elini Roneos, another Garris door in search of beer and coddling. He promised Sabine Gresslin, one of his collectors, pictures in 25% increments if she she wouldn't go home to bed, a quarter of a picture for each hour she stayed, and she collected quite a a nice collection this way by just um, keeping him company. He once rang up Gunter Lorenz, a manager at BMW, at 4 a.m. in his Amsterdam hotel room after everyone else had gone to bed and requested artist coddling. Lawrence had to go to Martin's hotel and keep him company at the bar bar until dawn. This one musician friend and his wife, um, a gallerist, they uh, lived in Frankfurt. And when Martin f- uh, moved to Frankfurt, he they were the only ones he knew. So he stayed with them all the time. He, he came to pick them up for lunch and then he uh, returned in the evening. And at one point, they just turned off the lights and hid on the couch. They just laid down because he said they couldn't take it any longer. Oh, okay. Martin was hyper, his New York uh, gallerist Janiel Reading said, hyperactive, hyperintelligent, hypersensitive. Just as he could never not work and never not communicate, he could never not perceive. There was no off switch. He was always at a boil. Even when he finally did go to sleep, he didn't get any rest. I'm so tired in the morning, he said in an interview, because I dream so much. I have a whole day's work behind me as soon as I wake up. Sometimes Martin didn't go to bed at all, but straight from the bar to the studio. There he could withstand his solitude. He needed it there. He didn't drink there either. After his death, uh, something strange happened. Until then he had been uh, the bad boy of the art world and hated by many, and all of a sudden he became a star and everybody's darling. And sometimes even those people who had hated him, all of the sudden they loved him. And um, he had been known and well respected among younger artists and art students, and also had a lot of um, gallerists and uh, very loyal collectors. Most of them were friends of his, but um, the official art world—they didn't. Uh, a lot of them didn't like them. The curators and the critics. Um, so you didn't have any um, museum shows in Germany between 1985 and 1997, uh, just before he died. But he did have big shows in uh, Paris, for example, Centre Pompidou, and in San Francisco at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, I think a lot of the museum di- directors and curators, they were afraid of him and some were even terrified and they were afraid of doing a show with him because they thought he would take over which he would have and um, some of them also didn't take him serious because he was funny and funny in germany in art uh, at least at the time in the 80s and early 90s what was not something to be considered um to be serious, and then once he was dead, there were a lot of shows and a documentary and CDs and, a, and books and, and many, many articles. And in 2008, there was a wonderful retrospective here at MOCA in LA, if any of you have seen it, that shows the vast range of his work in all his, its poetry. Martin tackled every medium, painting, sculpture, drawing, posters, multiples, books, print, performance and music. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is for one thing to remind people what it was like when he was still alive, that it was different. And um, also that I have the feeling that the popular image of him is very one-sided and narrow. It's always the bad boy and and the rude boy and the drinker and the guy who attacked people. And all of this is true, but I think uh, like other people who knew him well and personally, uh, there were many other sides to him too. And I think he was a very sweet and generous person, very supportive of his artist friends, very funny, very vulnerable and sensitive. And for all his nomadic life he was extremely loyal and a family man, and by family I mean not only our family but all the families he gathered around uh, him, friends and lots of artists. And he was a very hard worker, too. Always on duty is um, how his galleries put it. Always in the moment of art. His whole life was about art and was art. He never went on vacation and there were never any after hours. When he was in the bar drinking, he was talking with other artists, other people getting new ideas all the time. We come from a big family. We were five kids, four girls and Martin the only boy right in the middle. I'm uh, the youngest four years younger than him and we grew up in the city of Essen which is a very heavily industrial area or was at the time like Pennsylvania and um Uh, We lived in a big, lively house, a former farmhouse with a huge garden, so that we have lots of space to move about. And the house was very full of everything, of people, of art, of children, of guests. And uh, our parents had a lot of artist friends, so Martin grew up with the notion that you could be an artist and make a living from it. They were not big names, but at least uh, I think it was very important to know that um, you could make your living as an artist. On our kitchen wall, there was written in big letters, Martin, our artist. As a kid, he was already drawing and painting all the time, and um, when he was asked what he wanted to have for his birthday or Christmas, it was always crayons or paper. And uh, he was convinced from very, very early on that he would be, um, that he is an artist and would become a famous artist. He didn't have any doubts about this. And this was at a time when he was flunking school and taking drugs and my mother was really desperate, but he was just convinced that um, this is what he was. And the only question was how he would get there to being a famous and um, rich artist. When Martin was asked if he thought that our parents, uh, or whether our parents had an influence on him, he said, oh, massive, massive, massive. You don't invent yourself, is how he put it. Our father was a mining engineer, but he really wanted to be an artist. He was 19 uh, when the war break up, broke out in 39, so he had uh, six years of being a soldier, and when he came back, he had to do something to make a living. So he didn't study art, which he would have loved to do. Um, but he did um, a lot of things that Martin later on did. He tackled everything, painting, drawing sculptures, designing gardens, taking photographs, organizing his own exhibitions, staging parties, and giving endless speeches, no matter whether people wanted to hear them or not. Uh, this is also a specialty of Martin's. And he wrote about our life and published books himself. And I think if Martin learned anything from our father, it was this, that if you want to do something, do it. Don't wait till somebody invites you, because most likely they won't. So our father took pictures all the time, and often he staged us. um, You might still see the picture later on. Uh, So we had to stand up on steps and put out the hand like this. And uh, Martin later on, uh, he was the only one who uh, loved being staged and posing for the camera. And he used the picture later on as a postcard and called it, hey, hey, here are the monkeys. Our mother was a doctor, but a writer at heart, and she wrote little funny stories about our life. And even if it wasn't all that funny, like her breast cancer or her divorce, she turned it into something that you could laugh about. I think that's something Martin also did often, turning something painful into something witty, and making art out of life, out of everyday um, life and objects. Martin really used everything that seemed interesting to him. German history, postcards, his drinking. And when he was beaten up in Berlin by punks, um, this was in the um, early 80s, really bad, he had a picture taken with his head bandaged again, I'll show you the picture later, um, which he subsequently subsequently used as an invitation card for an exhibition and also turned into a painting called Dialogue with Youth. It was very typical of him uh, and of his way of working that he always used one motif and did several works out of it. So drawings and paintings, maybe even sculptures, an invitation card. And he would never let go of good material, even if he was hurt. Martin strongly believed that you were born as an artist. You could learn to be an artist. You could only learn the techniques and and, uh, how to go about the business, but you either were an artist or you were not. That also meant that he had this almost religious idea that you have a chosen path that you have to follow no matter whether it's easy or hard, and he did. That might be something he saw in the street, something he read, or more likely someone else had uh, more likely something someone else had read and told him about because he didn't like to read. It might be a joke or an expression someone came up with that he later used as a title for a work or a show. It might be an idea someone else had and that he then turned into an artwork of his own or if he at one time Uh, He saw a couch, he was in Manhattan walking and there was a couch in the corner with garbage uh, bags around there and he just sat down and had his picture taken and then he had a a, um, painting made from the picture. It's a very elegant um, picture I think. And he oftentimes uh, asked others to work for him, his students, his assistants, even children, grandmother, every, everybody that he met, he sort of, um, you know, made work, made he made them work for him. And um, he was uh, very different in, from Jeff Koons. I visited Jeff Koons because they also did a project together and they were friends um, or sort of friends. And Jeff Koons has a very different kind of studio, he has dozens of um, assistants, but they do exactly what he tells them. So he has a picture on the computer that he, um, you know, designed on the computer, and then his assistants they stand there and paint exactly, you know, one to one the way he did it. Or he has some sculpture, and they polish the sculpture. And the way Martin did it was, for example, with one um, friend of his who did a lot of sculptures for him. They talked about an idea. And then Uli Stroth-Johann, that's his name, he went out and got stuff and just built it the way he thought was the right way. Martin always claimed that he wasn't made for school. The very first day he put out a leg for the teacher, like this. He thought it was funny, she didn't. This was probably one of the first of many cases in his life that he was told um, Martin, up in the echo and shame dich, which is the name of a sculpture, Martin, go to the corner and be ashamed of yourself. Actually, school was a disaster. He was dyslexic, often ill, and what nowadays would be called hyperactive. He was supposed to repeat third grade, and then he said to my mother, I'm not going to school anymore. And this was it. So she was quite uh, desperate, and um, she did what a lot of people do then she sent him to boarding school. And um, he sort of longed to be home and felt abandoned. And then he was sent to another boarding school and came back home and flunked so often that finally he just had to quit school. He um, didn't finish. And my mother then uh, got him an apprenticeship as a window dresser and uh, because she thought, you know, the boy has to have training that he can make money. And of course he quit this. And then he went to a drug rehab um, close to Hamburg where there were a lot of artists and musicians. And he applied for art school in Hamburg and. Was even accepted and um even though a lot of people think he was wild. Um, he also was a very, like I said, a very hard worker and he wanted to learn something. In um, art school in Germany at the time, the professors didn't take the job very seriously. And he had one from Vienna and the professor never showed up. So he had his assistant take over, but his assistant oftentimes didn't show up. And at one time, he came late several hours and Martin, as a student, just went up and hit him uh, because he was so angry. He thought, you know, he went to art school because because he wanted to learn something, and then the stupid guy never comes. Um, After he had uh, had enough of art school in Hamburg, he went to Italy and had a project um, of painting pictures um, about this size and uh, all in black and white from motifs he found in Florence and the project was to um, paint as many pictures so when he stacked them up they would reach his height. He stopped a little bit uh, before he reached that height and went back to Hamburg and nobody wanted to buy the paintings so eventually um, someone who has a bar and who um, became his best friend in Berlin Michel Wirtle, he had the Paris bar, he Took the pictures, I know 170 pictures or so, and Martin got free drinking and eating uh, for the rest of his life, and this was actually a very good deal for both of both of them, because afterwards the pictures were worth a lot of money, and uh, Martin it was really his home base, uh, the Paris bar. And it was something he would do uh, uh, all his life, exchange um, his artwork for drinking, eating, and also um, for sleeping in hotels. He had one hotel in Cologne called um, Chelsea, where he stayed for a month and he just paid with paintings. And again, it was a good be- deal for both of them. After um, Fl- uh, Florence uh, Florence, um, and the first, uh, the short, um, time back in Hamburg. He went to Berlin. This was in the late 70s and Berlin was um, um, this was West Berlin, of course. The wall was up and it was a um, sort of a wild place. A lot of um, people who wanted to, to escape um, West Germany, which was sort of stuffy, um, they came to Berlin and just did what they wanted to do. But West Berlin was different in many respects also. Um, even the stamps, you, you had to pay less for the stamps there. Uh, and the men didn't have to go to the army, which was also a reason why a lot of uh, young men went there. And um, our mother had died in 76, and uh, we inherited a little bit of money and Martin put the money of course immediately into his project and one project was called Kippenberger's office where he showed other people's work sometimes showed just uh, soccer games on television whatever came to his mind and then he also bought shares in a, a very famous punk club in Kreuzberg and it's called SO 36 and he made music there he certainly didn't invent punk or bring it to Berlin, as is sometimes said. Punk had been there a long time, but Martin gave it a platform at so 36 and jumped up on stage with it. What did punk mean to him? Nothing, according to Albert Oehlen, an artist friend of his, or not his music. What interested him was the attitude, that you do what you want said his garrows, Gisela Kapitain. That you break all the rules and cross all the boundaries, especially the boundaries of good taste. What he liked was the intensity of the shows, how wild and anarchic the punks were, that the music was chaotic and didn't last long. We play waste sound, Martin said about his own band, Luxus, consisting of him and some other people. The band existed for only one record and was never intended to last any longer. Records were as much part of artistic production as invitations, posters, and catalogs. As Albert Oehlen wrote in the catalog, To Wahrheit ist Arbeit, truth, uh, uh, Truth is Work. To the obnoxious question, Mr. Oehlen, you've made a record, but you can't sing at all. Why did you do it? There's only one answer. I can make a record anyway. The music scene at the time was more brash, bold, and free than the art scene. It was also a part of life, and and of what it meant to be alive, not shut in museum basements. That may well be another reason why Martin liked music so much, because he fit better in that world, the world of pop stars and rock stars, than in the serious, dignified art world of his day. Working in a group, being surrounded by groupies, the fast pace, the loud shows, the diva-ish behavior—what we call star quality in general—it all went better with music, with the music world, and was accepted there. Okay, now we can have a little music. Yeah. Um, this is a, a song by an Italian. Um, Okay, in the meantime, I'll do something else. Um, As I said, Martin wanted to do everything, so of course he also wanted to do literature. And suddenly he was gone. In 1980, without knowing a word of French, he left for Paris to become a writer, he said. He did everything an aspiring writer along the Seine is supposed to do, found himself a garret room in an old Marais hotel, and a café to sit in, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Now all he had to do was to write. It didn't work out at all, Martin said 15 years later. Four or five good poems came out, and that was it. Okay. No? Further? No, one further. Yeah. Yo, 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 We can play more later on. But Martin loved to be on the stage, so every opportunity he got, he just grabbed it and um, did whatever he felt like doing. So He was in Paris trying to be a writer. Um, There was no way it could have worked out. How could someone who had never in his life read a novel suddenly write one? A dyslexic who wrote only with difficulty and in block letters, someone used to hurtling around Berlin whose motto was, idea today, done tomorrow. How could he expect to sit in one place for six months and do nothing but sit in silence and write? Maybe it was never supposed to work out. Like the plan to go to Florence to become an actor, Max Hetzler, Martin's galleries later thought that that project was designed in advance to fail, too, so that Martin could work the failure into his art and his artist's biography. Escape into the life of a writer as part of the concept of the total artist who crossed all boundaries, of the, or the concept of the artist as one who fails, but a show-off either way. Okay. But even if Martin was never a real writer, he was a man of letters. With a preference for short forms, his exhibition and painting titles became catchphrases. And for speaking rather than writing his literature, for him it was a performance art, life as a play. Um, a lot of his, um, his uh, titles for works in Germany are, um, actually became sayings and also became shows of other uh, names um, of other shows talking is what he most loved to do as he had already said in the late 70s in berlin Better than painting goes faster for Martin. Art was always communication, a way to convey himself, and so conversation or the monologue it often mutated into talking, telling jokes, and telling stories where the literary forms that su- were, were the literary forms that suited him best, the most immediate and most spontaneous mode of communication. So he, he would often stand up uh, in, in places at openings in restaurants uh, at parties and would tell tell jokes, and he, he, he loved catchphrases, but um, what he did with the jokes was the opposite. So he told a joke that normally would have lasted uh, maybe two minutes, and he <laughs> told it in half an hour or an hour, and really tortured people. And if people, uh, he wanted to see whether they, you know, would um, take it, and if they Um, got upset or something then he would say I'll start from the beginning and he did (laughs) so at one point he also said uh, I could stop painting but I could never stop talking After uh, uh, Berlin, which was a very wild time, he um, um, went to Fr- to Italy again to paint. And um, then he called several galleries in Germany and said, I have all these paintings I want to show. Do you want to have them? And all of them said no, except for one, Max Hetzler. And uh, so he's, he said he would look at them. And he thought Martin would maybe bring one or two or some, picture, uh, some photographs of them. But Martin came with a VW bully and uh, just carried all the pictures up in the uh, the stairway to the gallery and Max Hetzler did show it and became his gallerist after, afterwards and Martin went to the Black Forest um Uh, afterwards and uh, started what he called his Sahara and anti-Sahara program. Sahara program meant um, he didn't drink for several months and just painted, 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 and anti-Sahara was Christmas and New Year's when he started drinking again. Mm -hmm. And then he had a show together um, and he stayed in in the Black Forest with a family um, uh, called Christine, and they were very, very loyal uh, collectors and his uh, most important family really um he then you know he um he kept moving uh, around eventually also uh, got to los angeles which was not such a good idea really because he didn't have a driver's license and um he was stuck in venice and the city just didn't suit him at all because he always loved to communicate directly and to go to a place and know their artists uh, and talk to them but here you have to make appointments a week or two weeks in advance and then you have to drive there for two we- uh, two hours and and you have to find someone to drive you. So it was not a happy time. But this um, pattern of his life of always uh, moving, um, he once did a um, catalog, and he called it Heimweh Highway, Homesickness Highway. And I think that really sums up his whole life. Um, Longing to belong, to have a home, yet at the same time running away from the very idea in order to be free of obligations, duties, and constraints. His desire to find a resting place was at odds with this enormous curiosity with which he threw himself at anything new. He was torn between having to be alone in order to paint and to draw and not being able to be alone. A desire for being recognized for what he had done, yet not wanting to become public property. That was his lifelong struggle, really. In her foreword to the catalog Heimweh Highway, Jutta Köter describes Martin as an artist who stays in one place and lives out his vision of that place for a limited time before he's off again. Wherever he went, to someone's house or to a city, he tried to take possession of it, shape it, leave traces. Someone called it the Kippenberger the Kippenburgerization of the world. Uh, after he came back from Los Angeles, he went to Frankfurt to teach. Mm. And that's also something he did his way. Like I said before, Martin was firmly convinced that you were born an artist or you weren't. You could learn techniques, but that wasn't art. Everything else has to emerge from life, and so that was what he told his students, get a life. Another recommendation, they should make catalogs, whether they had an exhibition or not. A catalogue expands your audience and gives an artist a voice outside of critics and criticism. Trade your pictures for food for a catalogue. That's, that was also something that was very important for Martin, all these books um, to sort of spread out because the critics at the time they just didn't uh, write about him. Uh, and the few who did uh, mostly um, wrote very critically. And um, he had a few art, a few critic friends like Dietrich Dietrichsen and Martin Prinzhorn and they wrote texts in the catalogs but they were not art critics. Uh, Dietrichsen came from, um, from the music world and uh, Martin Prinzhorn was a philosopher. As a teacher, he was free to do what he so liked to do, talk, lecture, make demands, order people around, say what he thought, show off. One of my most noticeable characteristics is simply that I show off, Martin once said. And then, if you put professor in front of your name, that three devil-free show-offery, works well on taxi drivers." (laughs) It was also an opportunity for Martin to meet pretty young female students and to gather a new clan for himself. But it was impossible in the long run to become a teacher for life, a public official that was not his goal. A little of everything but all of it intensely was his life motto. So he threw himself into his duties. Teaching became another mode of being an artist which he wanted to plumb the depth of in all its forms. The school turned into the stage for his performances with the students as his his co-stars and audience. He only did it for one year. If the students had decided to go to school, Martin was going to make sure it felt like it. Laziness was not tolerated. There were massive homework assignments. The students had to prove themselves with classic exercises, like a drawing of their own hand, an abstract oil painting, and a painted still life of spaghetti bolognese. They had to take photographs, write poems, make a record, produce a multiple, keep a journal, make a poster, and finally produce one Kippenberger. The best pieces would be exhibited in the Gresslin Erhard Gallery. The lesson plan also included playing Mau Mau, which is a children's card game uh, which we used to play at home. And Martin uh, played all his adult life. Um, it's a very, very simple play, but uh, game, because Martin didn't read. And when there was um, time to kill uh, and he just hated not doing anything, he um, played mama with others and of course he always wanted to win, win, and a lot of times he did um, because he also cheated but also uh, because he were, had so sort of much experience more than anybody else. and he um he never played uh, he always played for something so uh, when it's when it was an artist uh, the artist had to give a drawing uh, or something uh, if it was someone who was a rich guy like uh, familie graslin he took his students to the family in the black forest and um, thomas one of the children of the family he um, he lost and i think he lost 16000 um euros or marks at the time and so he had to finance the catalog for the students. That was the money for then. And but one student he lost, and he had to paint a studio or something for a whole week. But Martin never let people go. If you know, if he had one, he had one. And after all this uh, odyssey, he uh, finally ended up um, in Austria. A year before he died, he got married to Elfie Semotan, the photographer, an Austrian photographer, who did this picture. And she uh, was a widow. Her first husband um, was an artist. And he had had died not very long before. And she wasn't eager to get married at all, but Martin wanted to. And she she later said that she thinks he wanted to have a party. It was a three-day party. And he wanted to have a honeymoon. And as much as he always went to Italy uh, he had never been to Venice he always said um, you know I only go to Venice if I'm invited to the Venice Biennale and he was only invited after he was dead or on a honeymoon so he went on the honeymoon and uh, and of course he lived in Venice California but there was something different oh. and um, so what he did is then everybody very typical of Martin I think uh, what everybody would have avoided to uh, do he went to Marco San Marco place and where all the tourists are so all the good people they don't go there and then he bought some seeds and put them on his shoulder uh, so all the uh, pigeons came and and this was one of the pictures that came out uh, which I love a lot and um, of course from the pictures he made drawings and paintings and, a, and a invitation card again and the other thing they did was this was February um, and the Biennale was closed also there was no Biennale that year and they climbed across the fence and Martin had his picture taken in Front of the German pavilion, and he made a poster of it, and it said uh, Venice Biennale 1996, and there was no Venice Biennale in 1996. So he sort of put it to people's face, you know, you don't invite me there. But he had his fun uh, also, and another poster, and I think I, I don't know how many. Posters he did, as many as books, 150 or something. And um, he wanted to do a poster for every show. And if there wasn't enough money to do a um, poster at the show, uh, he sometimes did it a a year afterwards. He just wanted to have the poster also as proof. Um, Then this last year, before he died, was very productive. He he lived in the countryside Then um, Elfie had a house there in the uh, Austrian countryside and he did two series um, of pictures that I think are among his best and one is the, called The Raft of the Medusa and the other was um, the paintings, uh, the pictures Pablo could no longer paint. Uh, Martin was always in a dialogue with other artists, uh, living artists but also dead artists and Andy Warhol was one of the artists uh, very important to him but also of course Picasso because when we were kids Picasso was the modern artist uh, of the 20th century and a lot of people said, you know, some people loved him, some others hated him and they always said Oh, my kid could do the same thing. So Martin did a lot of work um, um, alluding to Picasso. One of the things he did um, which was very funny, Picasso had a picture taken in his underwear uh, at one point. It's a very heroic picture, he looks very athletic on it and then Martin um, got an old-fashioned German underwear and pulled it up here and he had a a big belly at the time and he made a whole series of um, these pictures, which are also lovely. And then the other series he did, um, like I said, was the pictures Pablo could no longer paint. And these were um, pictures of uh, Picasso's said wife, also based on photographs um, someone had taken. And he said um, he wanted to complete Picasso's work um, by painting these pictures, um, paintings of um, the sad widow, and he did them in color. The photographs were in black and white, and of course they were Kippenbergers. They were not uh, Picassos. So this is one. Uh, there are different others. There was a big um, show at in Malaga at the Picasso Museum this year, Kippenberger meets Picasso. So it's all about um, him and Picasso, and um, uh, a very lovely show, I think, and the catalog this um, you can buy at the counter over there, and I strongly recommend. Now um, I would have shown uh, <laughs> the DVD, but um, it doesn't work, so I can take questions if you have any questions. Yeah. Um, how about, um, a strange question, what happened to all of his belongings? He must have accrued well, not well. belongings, because he was moving all the time. There weren't uh, many belongings, and um, so the little he had, um, they were with his widow, Elfie, uh, in the house. Okay. And was, was she the only person? That he got no, he had a daughter from another woman. So the the two of them, they are the heirs, and uh, the estate is managed by his gallerist um, during his lifetime. Already, Gisela Capitaine. So there's a, a huge collection of work that they. Um, have and a lot of it is in storage and then um, given uh, not uh, not given as presents but uh, lent for museum shows. Yeah. I was curious. No, so he was this bad boy. He was. <laughs> What was your personal relationship with him? I mean, how did he treat you? Did you talk all the time? Did you well, um, did you? no, we didn't talk uh, very much, but we were emotionally close, I think. I said, um, As I said, I'm four years younger, and there was another sister between us. And so he was my big brother, and he defended me when I needed uh, defense against my sister in between. And I think this sort of set... Um, you know our relationship. And uh, Martin was, a, even though of course he was fighting or, or struggling with the family, he was also very much a family man and he always wanted us to come to the opening. So I did go to a lot and he was quite disappointed if uh, we didn't show up. And I visit him, visited him in a lot of places uh, where he stayed. He, His best friend who had this um, uh, bar, per- Paris bar. He was uh, married to a Greek woman, and they had a house on a Greek island. And Martin always uh, went there to work in quiet. So I visited him there. Or at one time, he went with Albert Oehlen, the artist friend who was most important to him. They went to the south of Spain, and I visited uh, him there. But. I was lucky, also, his last assistant, who was also younger than him, he said he had uh, puppy protection, and I think I had the same thing, because you know he made everybody else stay up uh, late, and um, he could also be a little bit nasty to other people, and um, we were protected as puppies. <laughs> so, so my memories, uh, I mean, I know that he, he's a very complex person, and I, I I think and hope it comes across in the book, um, but still, my, my personal perspective is um, um, a loving one. Yeah. You said that he uh, feared being lonely. Uh, was this something that he explored in his art specifically? Well, he did a lot of self-portraits, and I think a lot of them, um you can feel this. And one picture he did, for example, was uh, of him with a paint- with a. Plate um, in front of his chest. Uh, please don't s- uh, send home. And um, the last, this uh, last series that I talked about the raft of the Medusa. This is um, from a painting by Géricault. It's a 19th century, very big painting. And um, he um, he had Elfie, his wife, take pictures of him in the different poses of people on on this raft. And they were dying or were already dead. And and um, he painted himself like this. And I think that's. Um, those are very lonely uh, pictures. But, um, astonishingly, during this last year uh, after he had got married and he stayed most of the time in the countryside in Austria and this was in a remote house, um, he could stay there by himself, I mean not very long and of course he also had a bar and restaurant there where he always went to and where he set up office, um, he, you know, he had um, uh, cards that said his name and the name of the hotel, 12.30 to one thirty, he could be reached there um so and and um, one of the things that uh, i found very touching when i researched the book is that a lot of the people who had restaurants and bars even in the countryside they really loved him a lot and they they did everything for him I, and he demanded a lot <laughs> so um but it was very sweet and and this guy was one of them yeah. Well, interestingly, he said to someone um, about uh, yeah about a question. B- I think some people didn't hear. How did you uh, respond um, to his early death? Yeah, um, he said to someone uh, about a year before he died, "I've done everything I wanted to do," and so also the you know um, with respect to art, but I think also. With life, this didn't mean that he wanted to die. Uh, I mean, he also talked about, you know, being an old man, sitting in a cafe in Italy, and, you know, just relaxing, which he never did, he never relaxed. Um, but this was an idea he had. Um, so he definitely didn't want to die, but he had the feeling, he really had done everything he wanted to do. And what he did this last year was something extra. And I guess these are these were also um, self-portraits from the raft of the Medusa of him dying, and um, the official diagnosis of um, you know liver cancer and everything else came six weeks before he died. But I think he knew before. He didn't talk about it with anybody, but um, he knew. And so he painted himself. But he had such a joy painting them. And um, you know, people have told me this was in the summer uh, before he died. And um, he, every, he asked the others, um, they had to come to his studio every day, so he showed what he had done and uh, someone else told me that um, they came to visit him in his studio and he, he took his pictures and, you know, went like this, uh, like, you know, um, the, the girls when, when, they, when they voted for a Miss Universe or whatever, you know, they always have this in front of them and he did it like this. And he just, um, he he had such a joy making art. I mean, he also struggled a lot, but um, he did have a lot of joy until the very end, doing what he did. And I think, I I guess he probably also got married because he felt that um, there wasn't so much time left, but it was, um, uh, I think he had the feeling of sort of having a home and having come home and, I, what I think was also great for him that um, he had a, a lot of girlfriends a <laughs> lot and uh, oftentimes they didn't stay uh, together very long and most of the relationships were quite unhappy and to have someone who, who he could um, not only love but also work with I think was great at the end. Any other questions. Let's stand. Stand. <laughs> you You have been listening to the skylight books author reading series don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com today's music was provided by fragile gang you can check them out at myspace facebook and the itunes music store Thanks for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.